The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by the Reverend Zach Keel. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. So for our time together, we'll turn to Genesis 25, reading just a section of that, uh, verse 27 through 34, looking at the patriarch Jacob. So 25, beginning in verse 27, God's word. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man. Dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Glorious Father, we thank you that we can open your word, and we know that your word is truth, and by your truth we are sanctified, we are nourished. So in this time of devotional, as we meditate together on your word and on the patriarchs, we pray, O Lord, that you would give us faith to hear, so that we might be both hearers and doers of your word, and that it might all be done for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we go through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, some of the others, we often think of them as heroes. This is how we first learn them in Sunday school. These great giants of the faith that are, have a reputation that's often spotless, seemingly wonderful. And yet the thing is, is true, they definitely see faith that we can emulate in the patriarchs, but the thing about Genesis is it's actually quite frank about how weak their faith faith is. In fact, the sagas of Genesis air the faith of the patriarchs often on the clothesline of their dirty laundry. We see how flawed they are. Well, if there's ever a place where the covenant family is dysfunctional, this is its prime example. So this opens, our passage opens right after Esau and Jacob were born, and they were named. Of course, this comes off the heels of a prophecy in verse 23, a stunning prophecy in some ways, though that's the way the Lord likes to do things, that the older will serve the younger. So now we have, this, we have Lord's, the Lord's will, the older will serve the younger, and now we have the two sons. How will that go out with history But what's particularly interesting about this is that God's will goes against the cultural norm of the preeminence of the firstborn. 
society, culture, the firstborn was everything. But the Lord says, in my covenant, not this time. But we quickly move on, and now the boys grow up. We don't know how old they are. The narrator is not concerned. Are they in their teens, their 20s? We don't know. But we learn something about their character. First, it says Esau is one who knows game. That is, he's a hunter, and he's a man of the field. This imagery of being a master hunter actually recalls Nimrod from Genesis 10, that heroic hunter before the Lord. Thus we see that in here, man of the field, field does not mean the field you work, but the back country, the woods. Thus Esau is your, your regular Davy Crockett, or Crocodile Dundee. He's a man's man. He can go out and trap, shoot, and, and fish anything you want. He's got trophies on his walls. But then we learn about Jacob. He's one who lives in tents. Now this doesn't mean he's just an inside man, just soft. No, those who keep tents are those who herd the flock. He tends the flock and is around the town instead of being out in the back country. But the Hebrew uses a fascinating word here. It calls him Tom, typically the word for blameless or upright. But this hardly fits. We're like, is he really that blameless? In fact, we might maybe think maybe he's civilized or well-cultured or a mild man. But this, this adjective of him, Tom, blameless or mild, we don't really know what to make of it yet. The narrative holds us in suspense. But with the characters introduced, now we learn about what their parents thought and think of them. Isaac loves Esau, while Rebecca loves Jacob. Favoritism. Parents aren't supposed to have favorites. Favoritism is dysfunctional in the family. But know particularly why Isaac loves Esau. Again, the Hebrew is a little bit more graphic than the English. It literally says, for game is in his mouth. Because Esau feeds him with exotic meats. Esau's feeding him roasted ibex and braised gazelle. That's what he likes. That means that Esau is gaining and earning his father's heart through his stomach. Esau knows the way you get Isaac to love you is you feed him rich meat. Thus Esau's working the system here. Now Rebekah loves Jacob, but, and this favoritism is questionable, but no, no reason is given here. Why does Rebekah love Jacob? The only hint from the narrative is maybe she's heeding God's promise. She at least has some sense that the younger one is the way the Lord is going to do. But our scene now officially opens up, and it opens up in the kitchen as Jacob is making stew. Now, this is a general word for stew. doesn't tell us, note, what kind of stew he's making. He's just got a hot pot on the stove. Next, Esau comes in from the field, and note he's exhausted. This exhausted just means you're tired. It doesn't have to mean you're hungry. Clearly here it means he is hungry, but it just means he's tired from physical exertion. Of course, coming in out of the field and being hungry means what? He was unsuccessful that day in hunting. He didn't bag something. 
And so he comes in, he's frustrated because he didn't bag anything, and he's hungry. And immediately, note what he says to Jacob. He sees the stew, and again, he demands, feed me from this. Again, kind of a graphic word in the call. It means to swallow. Here in the Hifil imperative, what make me swallow, let me swallow, basically get in my belly, feed me with this stuff. And note what he says also, he says, from the red. And then he repeats the red, this red stuff. He just points to the stew and calls it red twice. It's red, it's red, feed me this. Now, a dome here is a reddish brown color, but it's used to describe meat sometimes. It seems that Esau looks at the stew and he thinks it is a rich, beefy stew. He's going to be feed fed with lamb or cow or, or beef. Thus next he says, I am exhausted. Now he uses the same term as the narrator. So right here, Esau's being more exact, more accurate to how he's feeling. He's tired, he's hungry, feeding with this red stuff. It looks good. But then note that the narrator puts this very interesting parenthesis in. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom meaning red. Note that the reason that he's called Edom is not because he was red and hairy when he was born, but it's because of this episode. The red stew will be the what Edom, both Esau as a person and the nation, will be remembered as forever. Jacob, though, is quick on the response. He's curt, he's frank, and he's demanding. Sell me now your birthright. Sell it to me. Give me your birthright. Now, at first, this is taking advantage of your brother. He's hungry, he's tired, and all he's asking is for a bowl of, of your stew, and you demand it to be paid? It's a little cruel, a little harsh. It's a bit oppressive. But he didn't say, pay me a dollar, didn't pay me your staff, give me your shoes, but your birthright. The birthright is the most valuable thing a son can have. It's the honor in the family. It's the position to the father, the relationship, and it's the inheritance. This means you get a double portion, and we know Isaac is fairly wealthy. This birthright means millions of dollars to Esau. But more than just the money, the birthright is the covenant inheritance. This is the blessing of Abraham that will pass through the eldest son, and that blessing is not so much about an earthly inheritance, but a heavenly one. He says, sell me your right to heaven for a bowl of stew. This is like someone asking you for a Snickers, and you say, give me your Ferrari, or a cup of water, and you say, sell me your mansion. This is huge. Of course, note what Esau says. This is an outlandish uh, um, requirement, an unjust sale. And Esau doesn't mind. He doesn't say, well, this isn't fair. All he says is, I'm about to die. But with this, Esau's not being honest. He's not about to die. Sure, he's tired and he's hungry, but he's not going to fall over. He's not going to die. But he is so 
oblivious because he's hungry. All he can think about is his felt needs and his appetite now. He thinks he's about to die. Here we see him delirious, focused only on the immediate today. And then he asks this rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question of derision. What is the birthright to me? It's meaningless. What good is a birthright to me if I die now? If I die today, I'm not going to inherit from, uh, from Isaac. I won't get his money. I won't get his flocks. I won't get his servants. And that might tr- be true on an earthly inheritance, but this birthright isn't just about the earthly. If he died and had the birthright, it would have paid him out for an eternal good. But Esau doesn't see the future. All he can see is the immediate. And Jacob takes advantages of it. Swear to me now. He repeats now as this day. Swear to me. That is seal the deal with an oath. It'll be irrevocable. It'll be permanent. There's no reneging, no Indian giving. It is set. What does Esau do? He swears to him and he sells his birthright to Jacob. Of course, there's an irony, a rather perverse irony here. He took an oath to sell his birthright. Oaths are done in God's name. That means in the name of the Lord, Esau swore that his Lord's inheritance was worthless. He despised God's gift by swearing God's name. This is the ultimate. In fact, this is why Hebrews calls Esau not just a fornicator because he married Hittite women, but particularly Hebrews calls him profane. That means he despised something holy, that he was profane. This is why. But then we get another surprise. Jacob gave Esau. Now we learn bread. Well, this wasn't a part of the original deal. Maybe Jacob's feeling a little generous. But then we learn what type of stew, lentil stew. All he had in the pot was lentils. Esau wanted a rich, meaty stew. Instead, all he gets is a pathetic vegetarian meal. But he's fine with it. He doesn't quibble. He doesn't care. All he thinks is the, is the immediate. The second part of verse 34 is quite uh, staccato, quite quick. Four Hebrew words. He ate, he drank, he rose, he left. He consumed, he was full, and he went about his day. No big deal. He made this, he sold his birthright, he just exchanged the eternal to fill his belly. But he moves along like it was a sneeze. No big deal. Just despised it. Thus, we get this verse, the last line again from the narrator, which is not frequent in Genesis, Esau despised his birthright. He treated with contempt a holy gift from God. Thus, what do we see here? We see Esau looking at God's gifts as meaningless and selling them for nothing. And we see Jacob conning, swindling, sealing it with an oath, taking advantage of a hungry and tired brother. You're supposed to help your brother, not prey on him when he's hungry. This is a cruel con. 
And yet in this con, there's a seed of faith. There's a faith to see that the inheritance of the firstborn was desirable and good. There was a faith for in Jacob that he had eyes beyond today and beyond his stomach. He at least had some value, however small, that there was a blessed future and that it would come from the inheritance of the Lord. Thus amid all his selfishness, all his conning, dishonesty, and swindling, we see in Jacob the slightest touch of faith reaching out to Christ, to heaven. In fact, Jacob reminds us a little bit of the thief on the cross here. He's as guilty as sin, but at least he had an eye for the firstborn. Indeed, as we see Jacob, we shouldn't imitate Jacob. Our faith should express itself in love. Jacob's faith expressed itself in deceit and treachery. And yet, in Jacob's weakness, the Lord's will was done. The older would serve the younger. The younger would get the inheritance. And thus, like Jacob, we need to keep eyes upon glory, not just upon today, not upon our felt needs or desires or lusts, but eyes for heaven and particularly for Christ. For that's the thing, even amid all this weakness of Jacob, we see God's strength to bring about his promises even through weak, desperate faith. And at the end of the day, we're a lot more like Jacob than we'd like to admit. We have weak faith, but it's God's strength that is made perfect in our faith because our faith holds on to Christ and he is everything. He is the one whose righteousness earned for us heaven. He's the one who paid the debt. But for sure, we should definitely not be like Esau, living for the day and ignoring eternity and that heavenly land. Thus we can see the power of God even to work through our weak faith as it holds on to Christ. Thus may we never let go of our Savior. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.